This is an ABC podcast. Hey, so just a heads up, this show touches on some heavy lifting feelings territory, including what it's like to feel so hopeless that you want to die. It's not graphic, it's not that kind of a show, but there is some swearing. This is a memoir show, so it's about my experience trying to figure out some big stuff. So of course it's only one person's story. One more thing, it's a show about feelings, so it may bring up some feelings. If it leaves you with a few things rattling around in that brain of yours, you might want to go do something nice for yourself, like me. Right now, I'm about to get in the bath. Oh, and if you haven't listened from the start, go back to Ep Zero and start from there. So, where do you go when you feel like a masticated maraschino cherry? Like you've been chewed up and spat out the other side? Well, a few places actually. So I'm in the car and I'm about to go to the Dialectical Behavioral Therapy Orientation Program. I'm really fucking tired. And honestly, I don't want to be here, but I should. So I am uh, a bit nervous about meeting other people, but I'm sure I'll be fine. It's okay. It's okay. I'm doing this year-long program called Dialectical Behaviour Therapy, or DBT. Twice a week, on Mondays and Fridays, I drive 45 minutes across town making up songs or recording voice memos to myself along the way. On Mondays, I have my individual session with a psychologist, for which I bring along my diary card. The diary card is at the very centre of DBT and is the piece de resistance of self-vigilance. At the end of each day, I flip open this special diary card app on my phone and answer an extensive array of questions. The questions cover everything from my feelings, how much, how much joy, joy did you feel, feel today, today? And, and, um, any, any sadness, sadness guilt, guilt, or shame? To how much I think about the bad stuff. Can we, Can we rate, rate suicidal, suicidal ideation, ideation out of five? To whether I've actually acted on any of these things. And any, any self-harm today? today? Food, Food restriction? restriction? Have, Have we, we been, been late? This kind of self-vigilance is exactly why I've heard people refer to DBT as death by therapy. Then, of course, there are the skills. DBT is a skills-based therapy. So every Friday, I trundle along to a day-long group program with nine other bored-looking souls. We sit through lectures and do activities based on the different skills. Mindfulness, sitting with uncomfortable feelings, learning how to say no, how to apologise appropriately, which for me means apologising a lot less. We make posters about feelings, make ourselves self-soothe boxes. We practice half-smiling in the face of stress and putting on crazy sunglasses in an effort to remind ourselves that we're still capable of happiness. And even though the activities and the tone of it sometimes feels really patronising, I like it. It feels like an answer. Skills, 
Practical stuff that I can apply to my life, even if a big part of me is sitting there and wants to yell, this is so totally stupid. <sighs> and I just remember back to, you know, late last year when I was in hospital and I couldn't think of anything else to do. And all I could think about was how much I wanted to die. But looking at it now, at this moment, I'm just thinking, <laughs> I'm so happy to still be here. It's been 18 months since my time in hospital. A lot has changed. There's the therapy, of course, that new answer I found. But also there's another catalyst for this change, one that I really couldn't have anticipated. Sometimes life serves you up something that I think just has to be shared. And for me, that usually comes when life gives me lemons. After I get out of hospital, I upload a video documenting some of my time in there. Because sometimes you can't make lemonade. Sometimes it all just completely goes to shit. You get citric acid in your eye and you start flailing about blindly, knocking over the awfully oversweetened, pit-littered lemonade that you've attempted to make. That's when you're down for the proverbial life count. And in the lemonade horror story moments of life, it's really easy to feel alone, really alone. It's my way of making some kind of sense of this experience. To try to remove some of the shame of it, I think. I'm not really sure, to be honest. It just feels like the thing that is keeping me alive at this point. But you know what loneliness is allergic to? Shariness. So that's why I think it's important to share these horrifying citric nightmare moments. And in the process, I accidentally sort of mainline my heart to the internet. I start writing more, etching out this space where I can talk publicly about this mess of systems and feelings I seem to be caught up in. I tell myself I'm doing it to help other people, but really something seismic and unexpected shifts in me in the process. All kinds of people start responding to me, people in France, people in psych hospital, I become something of an advocate, running campaigns for increased government funding for mental health services, writing for the UN, getting featured in articles is one of those bright young things doing good work in the world. Politicians want to talk to me. Psychiatrists now want my advice. This part is nourishing in a way that I hadn't properly considered before. Campaigning for a less piece of shit system makes me realise that I'd unconsciously been thinking I was a bad person this whole time because I couldn't get better. And talking about it online only serves to reinforce this point, that my experiences aren't as unusual as I'd thought. Some of the women I met in therapy, the middle-aged ones, they tell me that they wish they'd known what to do back when they were my age, back when they were young. I tell them I understand, but also I feel the same way. It's taken me over 10 years to get to this point. I've always had some odd ways of making peace with things. 
like that video I put up of me in hospital. So naturally, I start a weekly podcast with my ex-fiancé, Peter. In the first episode, he tells me I'm not the person he's loved the most. Six exes, and and I'm the best of those. Yeah, you're number one. The others are going to listen and be like, rah, 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 rah. We went out for the longest. We still speak regularly. I would be pretty offended if I wasn't number one. (laughs) Um, I think... Oh, this is going to be horrible. Uh, <gasps> I don't know if you were the one I was most in love with. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah, that's you pretty brutal, isn't it? never said that before. Well, what are you doing? I mean, I, how do you... In the second episode, I tell him that I've never really found him sexy. I'd like to point out, friend, this is at home. <laughs> wow. I, do, I do know, like... I can't believe we had sex. <laughs> yeah, no, not very well. Um, like, more than once. Yeah, four times, and they were all pretty awful. Uh, it is a weird rambling show filled with old memories and quips about our lives. In episode 10, I accidentally start crying. Initially, I am horrified by this show of weakness, but decide to release the episode anyway. By this stage, I'd already put up a video of myself in hospital. What did I have to lose? Over the next 70 episodes and the following two years... There's this running theme of me crying. (laughs) I think I might have just had one of the worst thoughts I've had while recording this podcast. Do share. Which is, as you were crying, my only thought was like, I wonder how I'm going to edit that. (laughs) That By nature of this show, I've spent a lot of time editing your tears. (laughs) And so, like, the best ones are the loud ones. When when you're crying loudly... That's great. I just leave it all in. But a lot of the time, like just then, I said, yep, and your face scrunched up and I saw you crying, but you weren't making any noise. And I was like, how is that going to cut together? My tears become this lovable trope. Listeners start sending me things, an illustration where they've drawn me as this beautiful creature crying into my cup of tea or a link to another woman who has created a tear gun which dry freezes her tears so that they can be shot out of a specially designed translucent gun, I assume, at her enemies. Somewhere in there, I start saving my tears. Not in a jar. I researched tear vases and tried something similar, but found it really impeded the crying process. No, instead, I just take tissues with me everywhere and record what the hell is making me cry at the time. It's an attempt to find some objective measure for my emotional sensitivity. I figure crying is such a personal, private, hidden thing. And I knew I cried a lot. I was four times as sensitive as a normal person, I was told. But, like, how much is a lot? And how many a lot criers are there out there crying in secret alongside me? It turns out, a lot. Over two years and 500 entries into my own tears collection, my email, Facebook and Instagram inboxes are full of messages from people all over the world telling me what my crying means to them, what their crying means to them, what all this emotional sensitivity means to them in the context of a world that so often doesn't want any of it. I'm not quite sure how to make sense of this emotional sensitivity I seem to have acquired. I'm now dancing in between a world where it is both an illness and some kind of sacred human experience to be this sensitive. And I stop thinking that I'm weird. Mostly anyway. I feel like I'm living this double life, 
in daylight, I go and play the good patient and go to work and go see my family. And at home, in front of my computer, I talk to all the other sensitive cats, the weirdos. It's like I've seen something that I can't unsee, that I'm not that bad, that unusual. But that it also makes sense that sometimes I find the world hard, that I find life hard. And now I find a way to speak about it in a tribe that has my back. This seems kind of, I feel kind of weird talking about this because I'm a person who's diagnosed with having too many feelings, talking about how we're told that we have too many feelings. Like maybe my opinion is invalid. <laughs> I'm speaking at an event for International Women's Day. But being in this position, I've thought and I've learned a lot. I'm actually doing a year-long course this year just about feelings. Um, so I do like two days a week of like classes and individual therapy, just talking about feelings. A lot of stuff. This is the first time I've spoken in public, as in in front of other real people, about all of this. The theme for the event is, of course, women. But I'd just spent a year with all these other women in group therapy who'd spent their whole lives being told that they were too much, too sensitive, too big. So I put together a kind of manifesto in praise of emotional sensitivity to mark the occasion. We're born with emotions, all of us, but we have absolutely no instruction manual about how to use them. Emotions are reactions, they aren't choices. Telling someone they're too sensitive is like telling someone they're too human. It's quite nerve-wracking speaking about myself in this way. I've spent so long and have had so many people over the years tell me that I was crazy, too sensitive, that I made mountains out of molehills and was emotionally dysregulated, too much work, that I had all but stopped trusting my own reality at times. No one is the barometer for human emotion. And no one has the right to tell you how you should feel. Emotions are instinctive guides and they are motivators. They tell you, hey, I like that. Or, hey, I think I kind of like that. Or, hey, I think maybe I want to change that. They are not good. They are not bad. They are just messengers. What we do with them, that's kind of a whole other story. <laughs> and even though this wasn't a big event, this felt like a really big deal for me. And I'm sensitive. And that is not good. And that is not bad. That's just me. Around this time, I remember talking to my boyfriend. We had only been dating a few months, but were very much in each other's hearts and pockets. But I was afraid and I told him that eventually he'd think I was too much for him. That right now he thought I was cute and fun and sensitive and didn't mind that I had feelings and that sometimes they were inconvenient, or that I cried when I watched clips of older women dancing and everyone was just cheering them on. And that was fine for now, but at some point the weight of it all would be overwhelming. That I would be too much, too emotional, too much work. He looked at me tearing up and he told me that he didn't think that I was too much. He didn't think that I was too emotional. He told me that he thought that I was emotionally deluxe. At first I thought it sounded like something off a McDonald's menu. 
my fancy fried tears or something. But then I realised that I had so rarely heard a man say anything quite like it. Since getting out of hospital, I've also started working in the mental health sector as a peer worker. A peer worker is basically someone who's been through the system themselves. Someone like me, who's employed to be kind of like a spirit guide to other people who are going through the system now. It's a pretty new thing in Australia and is a way of normalising the process of going through the system and sharing some of the wisdom you've learned along the way. When I applied, I thought I'd be playing some kind of big sister role, but it now feels a little more like a Sesame Street version of a big sister role. Everything's very chirpy and positive, which is quite different to a lot of my experiences. As part of my peer worker training, I'm sent along to something called Intentional Peer Support, or IPS. I've never heard of it, and, well, it kind of changes my life. I wake up in hospital heavily sedated. I wake up in hospital, everything is woozy, hazy, heavy. I'm here because I have a mental illness and have been chronically suicidal for the past two weeks. I'm here because two weeks ago I woke up at 3am realising with a crisp certainty that I had ruined my life. Since then I've been unable to get away from this idea. I felt hopeless, afraid of myself. It's a pretty simple instruction to write about a hard time in our lives in two different ways. For the first version, we use as much medical language as we can muster. And for the second, we use none. Suicidal ideation is a common symptom of my disorder. It's a maladaptive problem-solving strategy. I've been really struggling, thinking that perhaps my life is unsalvageable. I feel like I've fallen so far behind everyone else. I am mostly a compliant and motivated patient, regularly attending group therapy sessions, yet I continue to experience severe suicidality. I put my life on hold back when I got that new diagnosis. I wanted to get better, so life now is mostly going to work or going to therapy. I'm at that age where my Facebook feed is an endless scroll of other people doing very adult things, becoming lawyers or doctors, buying houses, making humans. My life seems to be all about just trying to get better. And yet here I am. Even getting better is something I'm failing at, apparently. My medical profile is reviewed. I'm prescribed a new SSRI. And my psychiatrist starts me on some antipsychotics for acute anxiety, as well as benzodiazepines. I try lots of new drugs. Different drugs. Mostly they make me sleepy or don't do anything at all. The nurses monitor my progress. I'm classed as low risk. The nurses check on me every half hour or so. I assume to make sure that I'm not dead or something. No one seems to know how to talk to me or what to do with me. One of the nurses tells me I think too much. It's strangely hard to write the second story. My person story. By now, I'm so used to the world of emotional dysregulation and chronic suicidal ideation that I get stuck when I try to use my own words. I've entered those other words into my diary card so many times. The trainer, Flick, an enthusiastic woman that I already know I want to be more like, asks us what the difference is between symptoms and big feelings, what it means to be ill. She explains the process of how despair and hopelessness 
becomes chronic suicidality, about what happens to your sense of self when most of your relationships seem to be centred around you being sick, around you being a person needing care. Flick is the first person I've ever heard talk about her experiences of self-harm, of madness, as she calls it, not in terms of illness, but in terms of shame. And it cracks me wide open. I arrive home. I put my bag down and say, Fuck! Loudly to the empty room. I say a few more fuck, fuck, fuck. Fucks. Because it feels good to say fuck at a time like this. There is a fuck for all the money I've spent on therapy that may have made a bunch of things worse. There is a fuck for all the ways in which my relationships and now my life seems to be based upon this idea that there was something diagnosably wrong with me. And there is an especially passionate fuck you for that psychiatrist who gave me this diagnosis after knowing me for 78 fucking minutes. It feels good to say fuck like this. Poetic even. Fuck. Fuck. Yeah. Fuck. 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 There are these moments in life where something breaks. Usually a person or a job or a relationship, whatever it is, it's now gone. It's these moments that you spend 15 minutes staring blankly at shampoo bottles in the personal hygiene aisle of the supermarket. You've been a Sunsilk person for, what, 10 years now? But now you're not so sure that you're a Sunsilk person anymore. Maybe you're more of a Moroccan organics person now, with its serif font and half-size bottles. Or perhaps, dare I say it, maybe you're not even a supermarket shampoo person anymore. Maybe you only buy that salon shit now. And while we're at it, maybe you're now the kind of person who gets their hair cut more than once a year. Yeah, that's got a nice ring to it. Regular haircuts. I like it. And sure, we're talking about shampoo, but what we're really talking about, what we're really asking is, who am I now? Who am I really? This is a thing that marketers know that the rest of us only figure out once we've lived it. Whenever something happens that makes us question who we are on a fundamental level, that is the moment when we're most likely to switch brands. Amidst all this identity confusion, I find a gap in the market. There is no shampoo for this particular kind of rupture. No herbal concoction that says, maybe there isn't anything wrong with you. Maybe it's all an illusion based on perception and a willingness to believe in your own inherent badness. The thing I don't realize is that there's this whole other shampoo aisle with names that I don't even recognize. For so long, I thought I'd find the answer in hospital, in more therapy, more doctors, in more vigilance. The answer was about getting smaller, reining it in, being a good girl and shutting up and taking my drugs and loving my life because I was such an ungrateful shit. But I always hoped that maybe I was bigger on the inside. That inside me wasn't a poison, but 
instead some kind of tender connection to humanity, to humanness. In this process, I found a way to give it another name. And now other people could see that in me, that bigness, that humanness. And now I could even see it too. I'm not broken. I'm not ill. I am a complex creature, a changeling. And what makes me see that isn't a drug. It isn't a diagnosis. It's something else. It's the alchemy of sharing pain with other people, of unpacking critically what that pain means in a way that doesn't tell me that I am wrong for having it. Flick, that trainer, she had opened a doorway to another way of seeing. I take my first tentative steps through that door and I want more of it. I want space for it. And not just for me, but for all those other people who'd been told that they think too much, that they were too big, who'd been told to rein it in. But if that space I want, the space I need, doesn't exist, then I'll make it into existence. But is it yes. That's what my all right. Is. Okay. Hello. Lovely, lovely people. Okay. Hello. 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 Uh, welcome to the Mind Mapping Fields Club Feelings Fest. <laughs> this is the very first meeting of the Big Fields Club. Graham and I are hosting it in my living room. When we first invited a bunch of strangers into our house to talk about feelings, we were worried no one would come. And then we were worried people would come and we'd have a bunch of strangers in our house talking about feelings. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really something people normally do. It's a smattering of 15 or so people who identify as having big feelings. Some of them are friends, some are strangers. Almost all of them brought snacks without prompting. Yeah, which is also why we wanted to do it because um, there, there isn't a lot of spaces where you can like come together to go, hey, you, I got some feelings that are uncomfortable to talk about in public and maybe I'm ashamed of them. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I wanted that space to exist and I'm selfish. So um, here you all are and um, it's really good. At this point, I've known Gray for about eight months. He found me online and sent me an email about his work in the mental health system and how he wanted to help me generally fuck shit up in that space. Naturally, I replied, the internet wins again, finding those strangelings and bringing us together. The first Big Feels Club is a hit, and we're elated. The session itself only goes for 90 minutes, but several people stick around for hours afterwards chatting. Gray and I leave to get Vietnamese food in celebration, and afterwards we stroll through a nearby park, high from this tiny thing that we have made, a space for people to talk about what it means to be them in the real world with real people. I have something I'm going to tell you. But I'm kind of terrified of saying it. I love how present you are. 
how much you feel the present moment. You're so alive to your life. Whether it's terror or joy, you're just here for it. <laughs> I don't know how you do that, <laughs> but for some reason, I really want to be around it. <laughs> the Big Feels Club quickly outgrows my living room. It's now held in other people's living rooms, from Coburg to Johannesburg and naturally online. It's taking on a life of its own, which is just incredible to watch. Along the way, I'd folded my experiences into some amalgamated answer. This answer was born of different parts. A confessional podcast with Peter, my ex-fiancé, a mind-bending training program and making this weird and wonderful global club for people with big feelings. It coagulated into a lump of life that was good and clean, dripping with hard work and love and white wines on the back porch. The answer is now so clear and pristine that I'm organising a party to celebrate it. You like it? Oh shit. This actually looks really good. Wait on, wait on, wait on, wait on. Actually? Actually. <laughs> it, of course it looks good. Honoristly's I don't want to die anymore party. Yeah. I think it's got a nice ring to it. What do you think? And you even have bands. Yeah, I have bands. Even some of these have said yes already. <laughs> I mean, I got ahead of myself and I printed it out. But you know, I just. I, I just got excited. So have you booked the venue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually spoke to the guy. He's on board with it. He he really liked the idea. Maybe this could become like a regular thing. Okay, so in, in my the social calendar, in my heart of hearts, it's an annual event. Yeah, maybe you could have like awards for people who've like been there for you. Oh yeah. And then maybe like I'd get an award. Yeah, I thought that that's where that was going. <laughs> you want an award for like best boyfriend of all time. I mean, it doesn't have to say that, but it would be good if it said that. Good suicide boyfriend. Ooh. It's got a great ring to yeah. it. I don't know. We could workshop it. We okay. could workshop yeah. it. <laughs> but that party never happens.
If this show brought up some stuff for you that you'd like to talk about, we've listed some places that you can contact as well as a whole bunch of resources and further reading in the show notes and on the website. Just search for No Feeling Is Final podcast online. Or you can always call Lifeline. Their number in Australia is 13 11 14 and someone is there 24 hours a day. And of course, the Big Feels Club is a thing that actually exists. Uh, so you can find us if you want to talk to other folks about these kinds of ideas that this show brings up. Just Google The Big Feels Club. And maybe you have a thing that you do and you're feeling a bit funny. You might want to go do that thing. Like me. I'm still in the bath. Been in here this whole time. I think I might stay here till I get all pruney. <laughs> <laughs>